Um, first of all, though, we'd like to thank Carrie and David and everyone at Skylight and everybody who came out today, and a little shout out to Binders. <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. Thank you for coming out. Uh, I'm Brian Phil. This one is mine, Waste. Um, I've had to describe briefly why I chose the object I chose. I think the best answer to give is that I feel it chose me. Um, my first uh, job that I wanted to have was a garbage man, and I never quite got over not fulfilling that dream. So that finds its way into the book, uh, which is in some ways analytical and scholarly, but is also very much autobiographical. It's very personal. So it's kind of an idiosyncratic story about what interests me about waste, and it ends up being a story mostly about time and desire. Um, so that's what led me to waste. Um, I'm Ariana Kelly, uh, otherwise known as Phone Booth, um, <laughs> and uh, the book actually began as an essay, and the I wrote the essay because someone asked me to um, write something about obsolete technology. And when I heard that phrase or that theme, what immediately came to mind was, um, or these two particular phone booths I'd spent a lot of time in. Um, one was in New Haven when I was finishing at my last year of college, and then the next one was in Ireland, um, where I moved after I graduated. And I guess at that time, communication was a really fraught thing for me. I mean, I think as it is for a lot of people at the time, and is, it is in general. But for whatever reason, I really started... In these two particular phone booths, I really started opening up and talking to people in a way that I just had not been doing. And so, however many years later, 15, 16, 17, I'm not even sure, um, I started thinking about why that might have been um, and wrote the essay to kind of explore that and then the book to explore that still further. I'm Allison Kinney, um, I'm Hood, and um, unfortunately I don't really have a good story for how I decided to do this, except that I wanted to write a book that dealt with state violence and with people who were just going about their ordinary lives until they ran smack into other people's assumptions and other people's violence. And so um, my, my book proposal was pretty grim, but originally I had an idea that there was going to be a section about transformation and fantasy and magic and people wearing hoods and being magical. And um, that kind of vanished because there was no there there in terms of the narrative I was was putting together and then so like um, one of our editors was talking to me on the phone and he was like you know Allison you took the book in the direction that it needed to go in and we're really glad of that but you know I kind of miss the Jedi's <laughs> and, and so I was like okay so okay so what am I going to do with like the Jedi's and so like, um, then I was like how do you take George Lucas's universe which is in in some ways a little bit politically and morally simplistic and apply this and then I was like Oh my god, the Jedi's wear hoods, and the Sith Lords wear hoods, and the Jawas, they have no allegiances to anything except junk, and they wear hoods. And that is how hoods function in our planet many galaxies away. And so I just ran with it. And so even though Star Wars came out of the book, that kind of informed the rest of the ideology. So. Uh, hi, I'm Evan Kindley. Um, I'm questionnaire. I like that these are like code names. Um, so uh, my project, it's, it's a little obscure to me how, how it happened actually, but um, I know one spark for it was um, observing in early 2014 the um, uh, sort of avalanche of BuzzFeed quizzes and just general uh, internet-based quizzes, questionnaires, um, seemed to really um, be everywhere for a while. So I was initially writing something about that, something shorter, and um, just got interested in the um, the evolution of this form and what it had, you know, the similarities it had to uh, quizzes in women's magazines and questionnaires that were used in social sciences and sort of opened up in, in some unexpected uh, directions. And so I, at the same time, was aware of this series and thought that it would be an interesting, uh, interesting thing to explore further. So that's my story. Um, great. So I'm I'm going to begin. Uh, am, am I audible to everyone? Okay. Okay. So um, <laughs> I 
Thanks. <laughs> um, I'm going to read, um, my reading is a bit of a collage. I'm going to read um, most of the first two chapters, which are very short, and then um, a couple very small segments from um, two chapters later in the book. One's called Fortress of Solitude, and the other is called The God Booth. And um, so there's kind of some jump cutting going on, but hopefully hopefully it hangs together um, in, in the, way that I, the way that I hope. Chapter 1. Disconnected. Standing in a garden in Otsuchi, a small town in the Iwe Prefecture on the east coast of Japan, there is a non-working telephone booth that has nevertheless been used by more than 10,000 people since the spring of 2011, when a 9.0 earthquake and massive tsunami killed 15,000 people and dislocated hundreds of thousands more. Built by Itaro Sasaki, a 69-year-old resident of the area, so that people could communicate with loved ones who are killed or missing, the wooden frame booth, which has plate glass windows and a door that closes, is named Kaze no Denwa, or Phone Booth of the Winds. Although he installed a rotary dial telephone within the booth, Sasaki never connected the line. Instead, there is a small notepad on the shelf beneath the telephone where people can leave messages and trust that the wind will carry the contents to their intended recipients. Otsuchi was one of the areas most devastated by the tragedy. The town lost 10% of its population, most of its 650 fishing boats, and all of its sea farm business. The waves that poured over the reinforced concrete seawall were nearly 30 feet tall, rising level with the clock face on the second floor of Otsuchi's town hall building. While the frame of the building remains, the town records are gone, swept out to sea, and that is the case for much of the area, what abides is a carapace of what was. After the last waves of the tsunami receded into the ocean, a ferry perched precariously atop a two-story building. Fires that began in the wake of the disaster burned for days because the fire department had been totally destroyed. Even before the earthquake and tsunami, though, people were worried about the future of Otsuchi. The fishing industry was diminishing, as was the job market in general. Now younger families are understandably leery of building again so close to the coast. In such a stricken environment, it might have been easy to perceive this disconnected phone booth as a whimsical art project incommensurate with the scale of loss experienced. But quite the opposite has happened, and for the past several years, there's been a steady stream of visitors to the booth, both from Otsuchi and other parts of Japan. Perhaps it provides a necessary terminus, a destination, a place marked by eradication. Perhaps one antidote to tragedy is useless beauty or just uselessness. In early January 2015, almost four years after the tsunami, when high winds knocked the booth over, shattering its windows and ripping off its door, money poured in from all over Japan for its repair. Um, I should say that in this book, there's a lot of factual historical information about phone booths and phones, and and what I'm giving you is none of that. Like, there's absolutely no useful information in this reading, but um, I feel like it sort of captures what drew me, these segments kind of capture what drew me to the phone booth initially. So chapter two, Hermit's Hut. I keep thinking about a famous writing exercise someone once, someone once mentioned to me in passing, but which has stayed with me ever since. The exercise entails describing a barn from the perspective of a man whose son has been killed in the war without ever mentioning the son, the death, or the war. I've never completed the prompt, and yet I think about this barn on a regular basis. It's connected in my mind to an empty phone booth I once saw nearly every day for the better part of an autumn and early winter when I was living in Ireland. It was 1999, and I was renting a room in a tourist town on the southwest coast in County Kerry, waitressing in the purportedly high-end restaurant of a mediocre hotel. The phone booth stood in an empty field on the opposite side of the street from the hotel. It was the rainy season, and I've been traveling around the northern part of the country for a couple of months without contacting anyone. When my temporary work permit came through, though, I settled in the first place that gave me a job. Those were still the early days of the cell phone, and I didn't have one, nor did I want one. I was glad to be out of touch, was in fact hoping to disappear for a while. The work was relentless, six-hour shifts running back and forth between a dining hall that looked onto the rainy Irish countryside through a bank of floor-to-ceiling windows and a windowless industrial complex buried down a flight of stairs that sufficed for a kitchen. Communication among the staff was distilled to its utilitarian essence until one word seemed to stand in for a meal, a day, whole belief systems. Everything else, the clamor of the customers, the anger of the cooks, even the thunder of an evening storm was white noise. After that kind of din, the booth was particularly appealing. It seemed melancholy, adrift in the middle of the field, as if it absorbed all the rain that had ever fallen and ever would fall, as it had absorbed all the conversations that had and would come to pass by virtue of its presence. Not that I ever saw anyone using the phone. Already on the cusp of obsolescence, its existence went unacknowledged by tourists and locals alike. Solidly placed, sturdily built, it was anachronistic even then, suggesting as it did a distinct point in a field whose point wasn't clear. 
But the rain that fell during one week and broad slanting strokes continued to fall during the next, and at night the word telephone inscribed in dark letters along the white lintel glowed alluringly. When we are lost in darkness and see a distant glimmer of light, writes Gaston Bachelard, who does not dream of a thatched cottage or to go more deeply into legend of a hermit's hut? I crossed the street one early evening after my shift ended, and instead of biking home in the downpour, I stepped into the booth, my hermit's hut, closed the door, and listened to the hushed murmuring of the atmosphere. The next morning, the air would be thick with the smell of burning peat, and I would wake up at dawn to take the early shift. But that evening, I made the first of many phone calls to the people few people I was interested in speaking with at the time, cradling the phone against my shoulder, leaning against the trapezoidal counter, twirling the cord absentmindedly in my hand. What comes back to me now is not so much the particular details of those conversations, but their moods. Communication in itself achieved a meter, the meter of crisis, and there is no more appropriate technology in a crisis, existential or otherwise, than a phone booth. Movies and books taught me this, but so did the object itself. The space was at once intimate and anonymous, private and public. Within it, my dramas were unique and universal, and my emergencies took their place in a long lineage of emergencies. What John Gardner implies in his exercise about the barn is what the poet James Merrill explicitly states when he advises writers. You hardly ever need to state your feelings. The point is to feel and keep the eyes open. Then what you feel is expressed as mind back you by the scene. The point is clear. The external world is inflected and formed by the internal. One only embroiders it to observe that phone booths were places where we often did state our feelings and arguably more openly there than elsewhere. Rain ran down the glass and resounded on the metal roof. Cyclists floated by in reflective gear like spectral fish in deep water. The field edged up against the borders of a national park where some of Ireland's most imposing mountains loomed invisibly in the darkness. And I was grateful for the shelter. So I'm going to read just um, two smaller segments of um, uh, chapters later in the book that I hope are thematically related. Um, <clears throat> While the telephone itself seemed to transcend some of the bounds imposed on us by nature, the telephone booth acknowledged and conceded to them. Even the new Facebook campus in Menlo Park, California, has numerous phone booths scattered across the 59-acre campus where people can make their phone calls. The phone booths are empty, of course, but they promise silence and privacy in a community where not even the chief executive has his own office and whose central, and whose central product, by all accounts, is one of the most psychologically intrusive of the 21st century. The booth neutralizes the mobility offered by the modern phone, enforcing stillness. The Romanian religious philosopher Mircea Eliad has suggested that structures erected in defenses of cities, moats, labyrinths, and ramparts most likely originated as defenses against demons and the souls of the dead, rather than armies. He describes in northern India how a circle would be inscribed around a village during an epidemic in order to prevent sickness from entering, and how in Europe during the Middle Ages, the walls that surrounded each city would be ritually consecrated against the devil, sickness, and death. Each demarcation attempts to preserve order against chaos. In much the same way, the phone booth suggests the needs for safeguards against threats less articulable than noise and weather. Because of their anonymity, because of their privacy, public phones have always been associated with intimate disclosures. The structure of the booth itself recalls the physical presence of the confessional, a place where truth and forgiveness are inextricably entwined. A confessional distinguishes itself from the church in which it is situated, just as for the believer, a church is a different kind of space from the street in which it exists. The door of the church is a threshold that not only marks the difference, but also acts as a passage between the two worlds. Not only did the closed confessional preserve the distinction between the public and private spheres, the closed confessional also preserved the penitent from disturbance, thus facilitating the focus of it the focus of attention on the act of contrition. Some of my most intimate confessions occurred in that Irish phone booth I found myself in years ago. The phone booth preserved the anonymity of my disclosures even when I was speaking to the people who knew me best. The invisibility, however nominal, is what made the emissions possible. The space simultaneously consecrated the exchange and maintained my distance from everything that had driven me to it. Opportunities lost, failure sustained, the accumulation of the person I had somehow come to be. For the religious man, space is not homogenous, writes Eliad. Certain spaces are sacred, characterized by their significance and structure in comparison to the formlessness of everything that surrounds them. Celtic Christians referred to these spaces as thin places, where the distance between heaven and earth diminished. In such places, they were able to communicate more easily with the gods. 
Within the sacred precincts, the profane world is transcended. Whether made of wood or glass, the phone booth stands apart and is made to stand apart from the normal flow of life in which it is situated. Although primarily functional, its existence suggests something more profound, the necessity of sanctuary without which life is untenable. Thank you. So um, I'm going to read from uh, the first chapter of my book, which I should mention isn't, isn't out yet. So I'm reading from manuscript pages um, out in July. Um, so uh, this chapter deals uh, sort of with uh, kind of 19th century predecessors to the modern questionnaire. And uh, in particular, I'm starting here with um, something called the confession album, which I'll describe right now. The Confession Album was a Victorian variation on the medieval album Amicorum or Stambuk friendship book in which one collected the autographs of one's bosom companions. In the Confession Album, however, one asked friends to record not only their names but also their answers to questions such as, what do you consider the most beautiful thing in nature and what peculiarity can you most tolerate? The word confession implies secrecy, but it is clear from the surviving albums, which often contain responses by multiple hands, that they were freely and frequently passed around among groups of friends. Like the personal details that circulate on today's social media, these revelations were not true confessions, but symbolic tokens meant to be shared. They functioned as a kind of intimate currency among the literate classes. Confession albums were primarily marketed toward women, and it appears that they were often used as props in courtship rituals to facilitate conversation and flirting between the sexes. Some sample questions from the Queerest album from 1878 give a sense of how this may have worked. What is your opinion of the girl of the period? What is your opinion of the young man of the period? At what age should a man marry? At what age should a woman marry? Should it be the lady's prerogative to pop the question? Do you believe in love at first sight? Do you believe in marrying for love and working for money? Were you ever in love? And if so, how often? What colored eyes and hair do you most admire? You can imagine any of these delicate queries giving rise to some glittering table talk or even a -a tete-a-tete between a hostess and a potential suitor that might lead, who knows, to a marriage proposal. But while men and women participated equally in confession albums, the scholar Samantha Matthews writes, it appears that women may have taken them more seriously. Where men participated, they did so at the behest of women, to whom such revelations appeared more significant. Matthews notes the marked difference in tone between male and female responses. While women usually answered sincerely, men often treated the exercise with a mix of condescension and outright contempt. For instance, one Arthur R.C. Jones answers that the noblest aim in life is, quote, to make money, and that his favorite flowers are nettles. This cynical masculine attitude is encapsulated by Aubrey Beardsley's The Story of a Confession Album, which appeared in the magazine Titbits in 1889. Of all the minor nuisances of life, I think none surpass the Confession Album, Beardsley's male narrator complains. It is a miserable sort of private publicity, a new inquisition, though no doubt it is as, it is as well meant as the old one. I know not which is the more trying ordeal to write your own confession or to read more of, or to read those of other people. The general opinion appears to be that it is very funny to make yourself out as fast or as foolish as possible. Though even worse than this is the painful orthodoxy of those individuals who claim Shakespeare as their favorite poet, Beethoven as their favorite composer, and Raphael as their favorite painter. Despite the mixed reputation of this new inquisition among gentlemen, many prominent 19th century intellectuals submitted to it. Among them were Karl Marx, who considered his chief characteristic singleness of purpose, (laughs) and whose favorite occupation was bookworming. Friedrich Engels, whose idea of misery was to go to a dentist. Oscar Wilde, who wrote that his distinguishing characteristic was inordinate self-esteem, and that his bete noir was a thorough Irish Protestant. And Arthur Conan Doyle, who refused to answer several questions and described his present state of mind as jaded. (laughs) Journalists, especially in France, helped to publicize these celebrity confessions. In 1892, the magazine La Revue Illustrée sent a confession album-like questionnaire to a group of famous writers, including Emile Zola, and printed their responses over the course of several months under the titles Les Confidences du Salon. 
Most of these literary confessions are curios of their era, remembered only by historians and literary scholars. One of them, however, has managed to transcend its original context and continues to have a surprising cultural influence. In 1886, at the tender age of 13, Marcel Proust filled out a page in an English confession album belonging to his childhood friend Antoinette Faure, the daughter of the future French president. The questionnaire's hallowed reputation is attributable, in fact, to the, in part to the fact that the young Marcel gave such precociously Proustian answers. To the prompt, your favorite virtue, he replied, all those that are not specific to any one sect, the universal ones. <laughs> the rather pedestrian question, where would you like to live, inspired a little burst of metaphysical enthusiasm. In the realm of the ideal, or rather my ideal. <laughs> His idea of misery, true to form, was to be separated from Maman. When asked, for what fault have you most toleration, he replied, for the private lives of geniuses. In 1891, at the age of 20, Proust completed a second, slightly less memorable questionnaire. This one was actually published during his lifetime in La Revue Illustrée under the title Salon Confidences, written by Marcel. The 1886 confession, however, was only discovered and published in 1924, shortly after Proust's death, by Antoinette Farr's son, the psychoanalyst André Berge. In an article titled About a Lucky Find, Berge described coming across his mother's old confession album in a heap of volumes transformed by humidity into a kind of sticky paste that formed a bond between a few pitiful survivors. Alongside a reproduction of the questionnaire itself, Berge offered a subtle psychoanalytic explication, noting, for instance, that the idea of misery question Proust had written first to be away from mother and then crossed it out and replaced to be away with to be separated. With this cross-out, Bears theorized, we can surely recognize the everlasting unease of the great psychologist who, in his subtle turns of phrase, strive to reflect the most elusive nuances of thought, no matter what. Bears's text uh, inaugurates the fetishism of what would soon become known far and wide as Le Questionnaire de Proust. Interestingly, he denigrates the confession album's, quote, stupid questions, while praising Proust's ingenious answers. But in fairly short order, the questions themselves began to take on a totemic significance, first for writers and literary scholars, and subsequently for the culture at large. For a couple of scraps of literary juvenilia, the two questionnaires answered by Proust have had a truly remarkable afterlife. High school teachers give them to their students to help them write more revealing recommendations. Something Ariana told me, actually. Uh, novelists and screenwriters fill them out on behalf of their characters to make them more well-rounded. The documents themselves have taken on the status of holy relics. In 2003, the manuscript of the 1886 Proust questionnaire was sold at auction for 102,000 euros, equivalent to about $120,000. How did this alchemy take place? For a few decades, the Proust questionnaire was known mainly to literary scholars and certain denizens of the European avant-garde. By the 1950s and 60s, however, versions of the questionnaire had begun to appear regularly in upmarket French magazines like Biblio, L'Express, and Le Point, uh, eventually becoming a staple of European middlebrow journalism. The German newspaper Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung adopted a version of the Proust questionnaire in the 1980s, as did the English Sunday Correspondent magazine. This was on the advice of the novelist Gilbert Adair, who noted shrewdly that the advantage of questionnaires from a financial point of view was that not one of the celebrities who agree to submit answers expect to be paid. In 1993, Vanity Fair, under the editorship of Graydon Carter, started running a regular Proust questionnaire feature on its back page, thus bringing the format to a mass American audience for the first time. Respondents were not limited to the usual authors and intellectuals, although Norman Mailer, Fran Leibowitz, Joan Didion, and many other writers did participate, but also extended to celebrity chefs like Julia Child, fashion designers like Karl Lagerfeld, and movie stars like Arnold Schwarzenegger. The latter's answer to the lowest depths of misery question was, did you read the reviews for The Last Action Hero? <laughs> it is television, though, that has been the most effective popularizer of the Proust questionnaire. In 1975, the French talk show host Bernard Pivot adopted a version of it as the signature closing element of his literary panel show, Apostrophes. In fact, although he invariably presented it as an homage to Proust, Pivot's list of ten questions, including what is your favorite curse word, and if God exists, what would you like to hear him say to you after death, didn't share a single item in common with the original questionnaire answered by Proust. Apostrophes was astonishingly popular in France. At its, height, as it, at its height, it reached an audience of 6.4 million, and the questionnaire featured in every episode, where it was answered by the likes of Susan Sontag and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. James Lipton, the man who would bring Pivot's version of the Proust questionnaire to America, first saw the show on, a TV on the TV network of the City University of New York in the 1980s. 
I had surfed past the channel, Lipton remembers in his 2007 autobiography. Then, spying a portrait of Rambo in, in the show's opening titles, doubled back to look again at an unaccustomed sight, several people seated in a semicircle, facing a professional personage surrounded by books bristling with bookmarks. Though impressed by the sophistication of the program overall, Lipton was entranced by the questionnaire feature in particular. Toward the end of the broadcast, he, write, the ho he writes, the host unfurled a list of questions unlike any I'd ever heard before, a kind of verbal Rorschach test that told the viewer more about the respondent in a one-word answer than an hour of questioning might have revealed. Lipton subsequently borrowed the device for his own show inside the actor's studio, which began airing on the cable network Bravo in 1994. In all of these contexts, being asked to respond to the so-called Proust questionnaire is presented as a high honor, a way of signaling that you and your body of work stand above the humdrum promotional cycle. You are there to do more than hawk a product. The audience is interested, above all, in you. Whereas the, whereas the Victorian confession album had frankly sought to orient its respondents toward contemporary life, what is your opinion of the young man of the period, the latter-day Proust questionnaire is intended to grant the tastes, opinions, and preferences of celebrities a timeless philosophical interest. Unlike the typical journalistic interview, the questions that make up the Proust questionnaire are not specifically matched to the respondent, and the standardization of the exercise somehow forms part of its prestige. Whether you're a philosopher or a sitcom actor, the questions are always the same. It is your answers and the fact that you've been asked at all that affirms your specialness. I'll stop there. Thank you. So um, in the first two chapters of my book, I talk about the duality of hoods as, as garments that are worn by both victims and perpetrators of violence in uh, capital punishment, in the Spanish Inquisition, uh, with the Ku Klux Klan and at Abu Ghraib. Um, and it's pretty grim stuff with um, a lot of talk about the abjection of violence onto victims. So. Um, I, in chapter three, I make this little shift um, in a chapter called Little Red Riding Hoodlum, um, because a lot of people wanted me to talk about Little Red Riding Hood, and um, I, I found something that I thought was like amazing and even better. There's this Norwegian fairy tale called Tatterhood about this hideous princess who wears this shabby, dirty gray hood, and her hair is a mess, and she battles trolls and witches and rides a goat, and she goes, and she's doing all this, and she sails a ship, and she, and she fights so that she can undo a spell that has turned her sister into a calf and it's it's the best fairy tale ever so um, this is my chapter about people who wear their hoods to take back power to resist and to fight so in the late 19th century revisionists rewrote the memory and history of the US Civil War they erased the centrality of slavery to the conflict erased racial injustice and violence and promoted a narrative of patriotic sympathetic brotherhood between white northerners and southerners this reconciliation whose terms ennobled and justified the Confederacy was affected at the expense of black Americans the continuities between enslavement and the systemic injustice of Jim Crow in the post-Reconstruction South got brushed aside. Conveniently, this rhetoric was promulgated just in time to recruit droves of reconciled white Southerners for the latest federal colonial projects, the Spanish-American War, then the Philippine-American War. Whatever the new Southern recruits were expecting to find in the Philippines, it probably wasn't a secret society of hooded Filipino revolutionaries carrying KKK banners. They were called the Katipunan, and which is an acronym for the most noble and respected union of the sons and daughters of the country. The Katipunan dressed in black and green hooded robes for secret lodge initiations. They signed pledges in their own blood, and they fought a two-year war for independence from Spain, then a three-year insurgency against U.S. imperialism. These were Filipino multicultural hoods, which synthesized the legacy of Spanish Catholicism's hooded friars, penitents, and inquisitors with trendy international fraternities like the hooded masons. Their meanings also collided in many ways with those of the U.S. soldiers who adopted inquisitor inquisitorial methods to hood and waterboard the Filipino rebels. Twenty-one black American soldiers defected to the Filipino resistance, refusing to fight their colored cousins. Um, on the other hand, maybe the KKK Katipunan hoods um, inspired white southern soldiers to go home and join the Masons or the Klan. 
Maybe the designs even influenced the Klan propagandizers, Thomas Dixon, D.W. Griffith, and William J. Simmons, to invent the 20th century Klan uniform. Because one of the things that I talk about in chapter two is that um, prior to the 20th century, when Hollywood and PR teams and mail order catalogs get involved, there was no standardized uniform for the Ku Klux Klan. In the first waves, um, the Klansmen would go out, they would, they would put on party costumes or straw hats or carry banjos and guitars or put on blackface or women's clothing. So they had no standardized uniform so that they could then slink back into in home and no one would know who they were. The hood is an object of such long-standing utility and popularity that any significant hood may wind up being worn for a completely unrelated or completely antithetical purpose. For as long as powerful forces have weaponized hoods, forcing them onto the heads of victims or wearing them to conceal their own violence, other people have relied on hoods' anonymity and everyday ubiquity in order to fight back, escape, and protest. In 17th century Vilcabamba, the chronicler and Augustinian monk Antonio de la Calancha fretted that beautiful Incan women freedom fighters were cross-dressing in monks' hoods in order to seduce and foil Spanish missionaries. So can we just like stop a moment to consider the endless subversion of that, of that like beautiful Incan women freedom fighters cross-dressing to seduce monks? Okay. <laughs> So, both individuals and movements can find that their own uses of the hood run up hard against prevailing ideas of what hoods are supposed to mean. But even when, and sometimes because, authorities brand the hoods as criminal or illegitimate, people keep wearing their hoods for resistance, revolution, and transformation, for self-expression, defiance, and play, and simply to conduct their own private business in spite of what authorities would have them do, which is not the least form of resistance. Maybe it's this tendency, as much as the association with the Middle Ages, that explains why hoods figure so prominently in myth, fairy tale, fantasy, and dystopia with their metamorphic conflicts between good and evil, authority, and anti-authoritarianism. And so here I have a long list of hoods for transformation from the Celts and the ancient Greeks and the 14th century Norse and the Nibelungen lead and Middle Earth and the man who fell to Earth and Frank Herbert's Dune and the Oompa Loompas and the Marvel and DC comic world and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angela Carter's Little Red Riding Hood. Finally, with E.T., where Elliot wears a red hoodie when his gang of desperados escapes the feds, smuggling an alien in his bike basket. On top of everything else, hoods are about transformation, resistance, and everyday life. Um, James H. Johnson, a historian, delightfully narrates such a transformative ordinary day in the Venetian Republic in 1793 when all the patrons of the Thistle Cafe were wearing a head-to-toe ensemble of a close-fitting black hood, a cape, tricorn hat, and mask. And you, you might be familiar with this from like images of Venetian maskers uh, today or from the movie um, Amadeus where his father dresses up in that, that outfit. So this black hooded costume had developed from a century-long battle between the Venetian commissioners of display and the aristocracy to quash sumptuary excess. But everybody started wearing them. Until in 1793, nobody could identify the class of any given wearer of this ensemble or the gender. One Thistle Cafe patron sat reading the Gazzetta Urbana Venita. The newspaper had printed an editorial by Senor Lover of Beauty who denounced the covering of women in these outfits. And he wrote, you women, you who are the beautiful half of mankind, who bring the light to all men who see you, why do you deform yourselves in this way? And the woman reading this um, editorial, whose name was Laura, grabbed a pen to fire off a reply to the newspaper, which published her letter to the editor 10 days later. And she wrote, you are reading the words of a woman. Without the aid of the mask, do you think I would be able to write? The gentlemen around me all think I'm a man. They leave me in peace to scratch out these lines without annoying me. The delight of responding to you therefore comes from the very thing you scorn." End quote. Laura's hood and mask freed her to read, write, and trounce a male writer while occupying a presumably male-dominated public space. 
And um, from there, I go on to describe um, the hood that is worn that was worn by um, a woman, an Australian lifesaver named Mekalala, who wore a burkini, which is a modest swimsuit with a, um, a stretch hood, um, in order to go out and save lives. And I do, and I also discuss um, an Inuit women's organization that focused on hood designs for securing intellectual property rights for um, Inuit artisans. And I end with um, the invocation of a 17th century London woman named Margaret Clark who was accused of arson and was executed for it. But on the scaffold, they pulled the hood over her head to, um, this is in my discussion of capital punishment, they pulled the hood over her head and she yanked it back up and said, gentlemen, I have one more thing to say. And she denounced her accomplice, who was a man who had been acquitted for the crime that she was being executed for. So, hoods can play transformative roles in people's movements, speech, and declarations about what exactly they and their revolutionary costumes mean. Sometimes while she's at it, the hood wearer tries to transform the whole world. And from there, I go into interviewing um, L.A. writer Wendy Ortiz about her experiences at the 1999 WTO protests and black blocks and pink blocks and people wearing their hoodies to try to change the world. Thanks. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> no, Brian. Let's do it. <laughs> waste. It's just waste. <laughs> I, I'm fine either way, honestly. Uh, okay, I, I'm going to read two snippets, and one is about nuclear waste. The other is about a little spot in Brooklyn. So you can draw the parallels between those if you want. Um, I have to find the page. Here we go. When our dams will have burst, when the sturdiest towers and fortresses and archives in our cities will have crumbled, when the languages we spoke and read will have been lost and our ancient books and thoughts will have been burned in the furnace of time, when the very notion of what counts as human will have been entirely rewritten or smudged out, when the shapes of the beaches and coastlines will appear almost unrecognizable, when the social and political and economic structures we treat as eternal will have been transformed into unrecognizable shapes. When all that we had ever thought and known and built will have receded into the deep mists of time, when all of this and more has passed, the great mountains of cast-off sludge from our nuclear adventures will be the last of the last, their deadly isotopes decaying in the desert with the infinite patience of a bored immortal. Even a mere 50,000 years hence, still millennia before our nuclear waste will have decayed, the firmament itself will have shifted as surely as the sands of all the beaches of the earth will have been shifted by the pummeling tides. <clears throat> the Big Dipper, which forms part of the spine of the Great Bear, will be noticeably flatter, its handle bent. The Little Dipper will not look anything like a dipper anymore, its bottom edge now well above what used to be its top. The Eye of Taurus will have fled from the rest of the bull's body, Draco's serpentine form will have twisted and coiled and bent back in on itself. The club of Orion shall split. His shield shall burst apart like a blossoming flower. The stargazers of the far future will have to abandon the worn-out names we gave the heavens and replace them with truer names. When you're forced to contemplate what shapes the stars in the sky will someday take, generations hence, you can no longer deny that waste has bested you. No human artifact ever conceived and in all likelihood no human, whatever that will come to mean, will last even remotely as long as our nuclear waste. At such a remove from us, it no longer even makes sense to describe these undesirable objects as waste. For waste to be meaningful as a concept, we must be able to comprehend some manner of relationship between the waste object and its discarders. But in this instance, that is no longer possible. We and our inheritors will have been laid waste, and everything else that had not been garbage the radioactive hulk we had sequestered for an eternity will have traded places with us, as if in a last derangement of the world we imagined ourselves to inhabit and possess, it had sloughed us off rather than the reverse, as if we, the waste makers, had become the waste product of time, and the stubborn plutonium were the lord of all things. Our lives and bodies and thoughts, all the things we desired and the things we discarded, will appear as ghosts, as enigmatic bits of drift, in whatever minds or machines remain, to pick us up from the long and crowded beach of history and wonder at what we were. Whatever else they will be, our nuclear waste, and the dim markers we will build to warn future civilizations away from it, 
will be a mausoleum, a requiem for the Anthropocene. As John Degada, Sarah Zhang, and others have documented, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant is a deep geologic repository in the Delaware Basin of southeast New Mexico, not far from Carlsbad Caverns, where native people who lived in the area 12 to 14,000 years ago left behind pictographs and cooking rings that have already mostly vanished or been destroyed. Before they become more space debris, transcom satellites orbiting our planet monitor every movement of each shipment of our immense stockpiles of deadly transuranic wastes, all of which are unstable and decay radioactively. The waste is meant to be entombed deep beneath lake beds, far below sea level in immense salt caverns. A vast land withdrawal act in 1992 enclosed some 16 square miles of land from public use and all forms of entry. The optimistically named assurance requirements proposed for the building of facilities to house these wastes cannot obscure the fact that there are many uncertainties involved in projecting even a few thousand years into the future, and they carry the whiff of fantasy, as do the elaborate array of passive institutional controls, which were debated, discussed, and designed in an effort to construct reliable warning system markers that would deter potential intruders and reduce the likelihood of inadvertent intrusion for the next few millennia. But as a nuclear waste consultant tells Degada in About a Mountain, this waste is going to be deadly for tens of millions of years. A statement that reminds you just how quaint the Herculean efforts at the waste isolation plant are and how terrifying. Given these truly incomprehensible timelines, one does not have to read all 351 pages of the expert judgment on markers to deter inadvertent human intrusion into the waste isolation pilot plant, but please do. I've read all 351 pages. It's great. Uh, You don't have to read it, though. In order to understand just how impossible it will be to bury the radioactive waste securely and establish successful and enduring warning system structures that could last many thousands of years. The goal is to use languages, star charts, images of facial expressions, elaborate symbols, earthworks, and more to, as its all-white, highly educated authors put it, bypass the vagaries of cultural transformation. An almost entirely male set of experts registers this in passing as a particular challenge. Their proposals include an array of non-centered, uncomforting site designs with the shunning of ideals, irregular geometries, the denial of craftsmanship, with titles like Landscape of Thorns, Spike Field, Spikes Bursting Through Grid, Leaning Stone Spikes, Menacing Earthworks, Black Hole, Rubble Landscape, Forbidding Blocks. The question came to my mind, will there be no more wandering fools centuries hence? If the future will exist, surely it will contain wandering fools. For my part, a rubble landscape or field of spikes sounds pretty amazing. It's easy to imagine future people, if they're anything at all like some of us, to be completely mesmerized and possessed by this architecture, drawn to it irresistibly. The last document in the immense waste isolation plant dossier is a reply letter to its panelists from Carl Sagan. After thanking them for asking him to contribute his thoughts to the project of marking waste for untold centuries, assuming the waste hasn't all leached out by then, Sagan adds, He proposes the skull and crossbones as the only conceivable symbol capable of having any hope of surviving the ages without mistranslation. Go ahead and include periodic charts, major languages, images of what the Big Dipper will look like, and more, he urges. But ultimately, it's all about the skull and crossbones, our only hope of a sign to span the centuries. As Sagan and a small number of the panelists recognized, the entire enterprise seems doomed to failure. Already, Brine seepage in the salt beds could corrode the canisters. The contaminated water could find its way into the Rustler Aquifer, which feeds the Pecos River. An earthquake had already occurred in the region while the preliminary study was going on for the planned system. And there have already been leaks. On Valentine's Day 2014, a radiation leak occurred, its release area covering more than a mile and a half. The 13 employees, none of whom were underground at the time of the leak, tested positive for internal radiological contamination. In light of some very basic problems, evident practically from the outset of the project, the stated aim of bypassing the vagaries of cultural transformation and planning for millennia smacks of the same imperial hubris that underwrote a good deal of the activity that generated this nuclear waste in the first place, human domination of other humans. 
The long series of convoluted expert judgments reads like nothing so much as a farce, a living documentary document of our inability to comprehend even the most rudimentary things about the future, of technological de-evolution and a return to less technologically advanced technologies, the consequences of dramatic desertification and global climate catastrophe, the political, economic, social, and cultural transformations we cannot even begin to imagine, the question of which states might be in control, or if the things we call states will even persist in future ages, who or what our future generations will even be in comparison to our own still mostly meat space lives, or the darker question of whether or not people will survive at all. For this reason, what is most compelling about the entire apparatus constructed around the problem of nuclear waste is the bewildering rhetorical edifice constructed around it. The tone of these waste documents strives for authority, but everywhere is riddled with doubts, qualifiers, red flags, and minor terrors lurking in the footnotes. Every one of the monument ideas and containment ideas seems paltry, uninspired, ineffectual. The keep, the message kiosks, the berms, the granite monoliths, the time capsules, the empty edifices of human invention. It is a vision of postmodernity's ruins that feels torn straight from the gray vistas of J.G. Ballard. Discarding the idea to bury it in the permafrost, which as it turns out is rather impermanent, while believing that any meaningful solution to this human-made problem could be engineered, the Waste Isolation Project dossier's immense archive of speculation and fancy speaks to what we might call a selective futurity. We are not solving the problem of automation or a post-work society or the long unfolding crisis of global warming or a hundred other things, but we profess to be committed to safeguarding our most devastating category of waste for eternity. This seems to be part of a larger relationship between humans and the waste they produce. Our relationships to waste of all kinds, but especially this deadliest variety, always seems to depend on a fantasy of power, a belief that humankind shall have dominion over all things, including its own debris, a steadfast faith in the idea that we will be the carriers of meaning and not the invisible annihilation we've left in our wake. The Waste Isolation Project and its marker project offer us the most profound example of the belief that our desires can annihilate, transcend, or master time and space. If a paint chip or a stray bolt can dismantle an orbiting spaceship, what buried container or grimacing faceplate in the desert will even come close to doing its job? The Waste Isolation Project speaks to the eternal dream of empire and the hubris of a vision for eternal hegemony, the desperate wish for technocratic and technological solutions to the confused muddle of history, the abiding faith in the stability of signs and architectural wonders, the obsession with security, boundaries, and policing, and the poverty of imagination that allows cultures to create and employ weapons of annihilation without even possessing the skill to secure their leftovers. As the organization Friends of the Pleistocene has argued, we have entered into a period in human history where we now create problems for which we cannot create solutions. And it seems increasingly clear that it will be our waste in particular that will serve as the record of the gap between them. Their series Hedging on Stability has been documenting the colossal efforts to contain radioactive waste at Fukushima after the meltdown of its nuclear reactors. It seems to us, they say, that we've all just crossed a threshold into a situation for which humans are now required to become massively creative and innovative at speeds, scales, and complexities that are without precedent. Not unfortunately in the service of life-enhancing innovations and designs, but in the service of damage control and risk mitigation. Human lives and energies, as well as economies, will have to be redirected for untold futures in order to support this and other climate environment altering endeavors. Nuclear waste is our strongest material reminder that we have advanced to the stage in history where we create problems for which we cannot create solutions. Or put differently, our solutions to specific problems inevitably generate newer and bigger problems. Some might argue that this is the human condition. If it is, then it's a condition we are endeavoring to foist on the post-human ages as well. Unable to build a world where we do not deploy weapons of astonishing power and violence, we continue to believe we can build a world safe from the mountains of our deadly nuclear rubbish. This is where our investments in the future are directed, at mountains of undumpable waste, the great perilous remainder we have unleashed as a byproduct of our modern life. To consider nuclear waste and the Waste Isolation Project is to consider a world in which our garbage speaks in our stead which is one way to imagine the failure of the project of humankind, as if to say, we have one message to give to the future, and that message is death. <laughs> I'll save the Brooklyn story for later. Okay, so let me make penance and ask you, Brian, the first question, if I may. 
Um, I noticed Electric Literature called this one of the best books of the year. Did you see an immediate uptick in um, readership? Did it have an impact for you? Um, given that the readership for my work is probably very small to begin with, um, I would say yes, there was an uptick. So there were like seven people commented on it, which constitutes an uptick in my universe. So um, yeah, uh, Jeff Vandermeer had very lovely things to say about it and was uh, has been a real champion of it. So it was really nice to see him say that, um, how that translates to sales or numbers or anything. I, I have no idea. But yeah, I did notice an uptick in my very small small world, so. Allison, I've been looking at your cover, which I started out seeing as Little Red Riding Hood, and then I started thinking of Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you want to talk about the racialization of the hoodie as one of the ways that the hood plays a role in contemporary culture. That's a direction that you thought in. Yeah, it, it's absolutely a direction I thought, and it's the reason I wrote the book. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard for me to answer that question on the fly because the way I wrote it was so that I would never say something on the fly <laughs> um, about it because it's so important. Um, I guess the best way to get at it is is that you know when you write a book about hoods, then everyone starts coming up to you and telling you their ideas of what a hood means. And like my dentist had me in the chair and he was telling me about you know like oh oh well, I wear a hood on my anorak, but I don't wear it the way those kids on the corner at the deli across the street wear their hoods. I was like, really? Tell me about how they wear their hoods. And so. Um, I guess I guess one of the most graphic illustrations of, of, of what a hoodie is supposed to mean happened when I was uh, after I handed in the manuscript and it was too late to do anything about this. I found this picture in Vogue of this little girl in I think 1964, um, little blonde girl wearing a black hoodie, and that little girl was Diana Spencer, who would grow up to marry into the English royal family, and she would become Diana, Princess of Wales, and this precedes um, the history that we write for ourselves and that we saw in a lot of think pieces after um, after Trayvon Martin was murdered saying, you know, that the hoodie comes from urban black culture. It is a sign of gangs. It is a sign and, you know, that, that's what it's supposed to mean. It's a sign of criminal activity and drug dealers and all these things. And 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 it was very much racialized. Um, I, I think that the history of hoodies has been that white people were wearing them for a really long time Everyone was wearing hoodies, and then you know, and then all of a sudden they become this racial tool. So, I mean, that's just a short answer. I mean, it's not a very good answer. I'm sorry, I don't really have a good on the fly answer. Another another thing is that like the Archbishop of York, Doctor John um, Sentamu, is um, is a is a man who ha who wears hoodies, and he has been pulled over by cops eight times in the UK. He is the Archbishop of York. He is the second most highly um, most highly ranked cleric in the Church of England, and he is constantly being profiled wearing his hoodies. So I think that says, you know, Princess Di and Dr. John Sentinel. We've got the story of. Ugh, sorry. <laughs> Um, listening to each other read, do you think that your di your books are in dialogue with each other in any way as a part of the object series, even if unintentionally? Doesn't have to be. But. I I mean, I guess I can speak to that first. Um, I think very much unintentionally. And when I wrote mine, I think when Brian wrote his, there were. Um, only four out, and they came out at the very end of when I was writing. So I, and I eagerly looked at all of them because I was like, because I, when I went, I was like, I have no idea what these people want for this series, like no idea, and I was totally freaked out about that. Um, so uh, I did find that in all of them, there seemed to be kind of a prismatic approach to the subject matter. So people were kind of approaching it from various angles, which I ended up doing as well. And I think there's been kind of int really interesting kind of resonances in terms of content and theme and um, um, approach. I like the idea that like one of the wandering fools that you wrote about in your book at the end who are going out looking for these random phone booths that are lost and it might be one of the ones who might stumble across 
these yeah, yeah these there sites. Might, this there might site. also be a, uh, an ET connection because I talked about the Atari <laughs> video game dump. Like yeah, yeah, there, I saw that. So I'm thinking a lot about ET. So. <laughs> Well, one thing that they'll start to the colony of Mars, that colony that the other planet. Anybody have an answer? I'm sorry, what was the question? What are we going to colonize Mars? Yeah, they'll start to the colony of another planet. What's the name? A new, a new name for Mars? Well, they did. They'll start to go out and bring that colonizing planet. You know, somebody in our series is writing a book on planets, that, and, and one of the co-authors is an astrophysicist, and so probably that author will have the answer to your question, but unfortunately they haven't finished their book yet and they're not here. So... Um, you guys could talk a little bit about your process in writing the book and kind of your information gathering. I mean, approaching such a large subject, like how you start to synthesize kind of more of a narrative or which came first, the idea or the object, like how you put, how you put your books together. Um, sure, I can, I can try that. I mean, it's... Um uh, so uh, again, I sort of started from a contemporary, um, you know, contemporary phenomenon, it's the the internet, internet questionnaires, internet quizzes, and so to a certain extent, I felt like I was kind of like uh, reverse engineering it, like I was kind of trying to figure out uh, what had influenced that, and sort of going back to a certain point. Um, and um, I mean, I think my uh, my process was probably mostly historical. Um, uh, a little less personal, I think, than some than um, some of the other writers um, here today. But um, I mean, I just um, I read a lot. I did do some interviews. Did sort of talk to some people um, uh, working in um, you know the sort of internet industry uh, uh, today. And uh, but yeah, just most of, most of my um, most of my research was drawn from from books from historical accounts. I think. Um, yeah, anyone else have an answer to that? Um, well, my writing process is miserable. I can just tell you right <laughs> that. Um, but, I mean, it obviously began from a very personal impetus. Um, and then I spent a lot of time researching the history of uh, communication, really, and telephones. There, there was, there's actually quite a bit in here about just the phone itself and how that changed communication, and then meditating on what it means to kind of put a box around that. Um, and I, to be honest, I really struggle to find a structure that would be compelling, because what I didn't want to do is just present a series of facts, essentially. So, um, and I'm not quite sure I succeeded in doing something beyond that, but I, I think I'm noticing now when I was going back to figure out what I was reading, I would probably reorganize it in a totally different way um, in order to kind of make the connections glitter a little bit more. Um, but I, I spent an enormous amount of time just kind of getting the history down and then just kind of letting that sit with me, like internalizing it so it became my information rather than just stuff I was sort of regurgitating. Yeah, I mean, for, for my part, uh, like I said, the allure of garbage and ruins and decays and stuff it just has a very long history that I won't bother to try to psychologize, but um, it goes back as far as I can remember. So it was an object that always sort of captivated me for all kinds of reasons. But in terms of the book, I think the way that I found sort of entry point into what I wanted to focus on for the book was uh, kind of coming around to the idea that the book was really about time, uh, so that the sentence I have in here that I think is one of the few moments where I'm very lucid and brief is when I said uh, waste is every object plus time. Uh, so there's something about that that it kind of encompassed all of these other objects um, that what we're looking at, these are all waste objects. It's just we have a different sort of relationship to time and that's what shapes our understanding of uh, what makes something count as a normal object in the world that we use and value and something that's discarded and time to me seemed to be the mechanism for all of that. 
I wrote my book in um, seven months, and I, I think that probably the best way to describe my process would be that I had a lot of ideas in my proposal about what I was going to write about, and then as soon as I started doing the reading, which I would not recommend doing it in that order, but um, as soon as I started doing the reading, I discovered that all the things I thought were true were not true. So like the history of executioners wearing hoods didn't exist until the 1970s in Florida. History of the Klan wearing hoods doesn't exist until 1921-ish around there. Um, history of hoodies and hip hop doesn't happen until Tupac and Juice, and that's really late in the history of hip hop. So um, then, you know, you you take this constant excavation of everything that you think you know, and you turn it into a theme. And it's like, ah, oh, didn't know anything about hoods. There's my book. So yeah, that's my process. <laughs> You just really struck a chord with me, you know, thinking about modernism as deprived of time. I'm just wondering if what circumstances, if you would riff, are evident of time deprivation, or where time is, is absence. I like the idea of garbage being fielded out of time. I mean, I just, and I'm just wondering if you could riff it all on your thinking of that, because it really sparks some, some ideas in my head when you said that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how well this will answer your question, and I'm probably going to avoid talking about modernism, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, but, I mean, the, the point about time or times, when you said it's the erasure of time, or yeah, that wasn't the word you used, but you used something similar. Yeah. Okay. Oh, um, so, but I guess the idea is that obviously there's chronological time. We're sort of all bound by history, et cetera. So that interested me too, just sort of the, the rise and fall of objects and their use in sort of history, but also how um, uh, objects become a way for us to think about time and as a very personal idiosyncratic thing. Our own personal relationships to time become manifest in what objects we value and what objects we discard. So I guess I was thinking of time in two ways. The, the time-bound thing that I was talking about with things like nuclear waste, which are bound by you know, the laws of physics, et cetera, the laws of history, et cetera, chronology, uh, but then also time on a very idiosyncratic, personal, individual level, right? So um, a, a section in here on uh, hoarders versus collectors and this whole idea that um, really for me the only fundamental difference is like what the majority culture sees as valuable in that time and that's the sort of dividing line between what makes something a mania and obsession a hoarding that's something to be diagnosed and addressed versus someone who's seen as this uh, collector of curios um, so they just have different relationships to to the time that they're in uh, and then that's manifested in how they engage with the objects that they surround themselves with so I'm not sure if that answers your question but okay. distinction between game questionnaires and bureaucratic questionnaires because it seems like census questionnaires and those type of questionnaires we go back millennia or they, in my mind at least they must yeah, so that that was definitely something that was uh, the, the questions about sort of the difference between a, a questionnaires as games or you know, quizzes and um, questionnaires used for bureaucratic purposes or scientific purposes or censuses, things like that. Um, I, I, and um, I did, I think I was interested in the interrelation between the two, and I was interested in how um, the two seem to have kind of influenced each other. So... Um, for instance, in the in the, the bit I read that sort of follows a, um, uh, some material on um, questionnaires, um, uh, sort of anthro they're called anthropometric questionnaires, sort of questionnaires that were um, distributed to record um, basic information about um, about people, about um, uh, and sort of this scientist named Francis Galton, Victorian scientist, was a sort of pioneer of this. Um, the questionnaire really doesn't go back that far. I mean, you get censuses, but it's it's basically recording, you know, it's, it's recording things like, you know, um, it, it, it's recording economic data, but it's sort of a, a questionnaire is something that's recording um, data about people, um, about their um, uh, their psychology, certainly, or, or even just sort of individuals, uh, details about individuals. Uh, as far as I could tell, really starts in the late 19th century. And um, it sort of starts, it seems to me, simultaneously as um, in a kind of a, as kind of a game or a leisure activity and as a sort of more serious scientific or um, bureaucratic um, uh, 
pursued. So it's really it's what's interesting to me is that um, basically it's two people trying to do this or two sets of people trying to do the same thing, which is just get people to provide information about themselves. Um, and um, yeah, that that was definitely something that was fascinating to me, and I tried to pursue throughout the book as uh, that this seemed to me like there was a dual history of of these two types. Out entirely, but I, I'm and I'm sorry, Mr. Green, because I was stuck in another dimension of time and traffic. But um, I'm really interested in how objects holding emotion, identity, hate as being impacted with the ills of society, or, or yeah. And can you explain the relationship? And I haven't formulated this throughout the just but of the object and in terms of like the mythos and the uh, talismanic quality and why we are so safe in projecting onto the object. And do you think that's particularly American, um, American um, identity process that we relate to? I like the idea of an object, you know, the hoodie is becomes a symbolic representation of an era and of, of something that white America can escape into safely. And um, this power the object carries is something I really like, and you know, as a human minister, but I'm wondering if you're exploring that idea of how the object um, takes holy manifestation and just kind of slopes it up and grabs, you know, a direction of a culture, and, and if that's part of the dialogue you're processing the book. Um, I think that's a great question. Um, I think you might have answered it yourself. I mean, ev- everything that you just said about the power of images and of objects to um, to create feelings, to divert, to divert feelings, to um, provide channels for feelings and also excuses for them, is are, are the kinds of things I'm trying to talk about in the book. And so one of the one of the things I do in the book is is sorry I'm. <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, one, of the, one of the things I do in the book is take similar hoods that have been used for 500 years whose meanings flip-flop from this cultural context to this cultural context. And so here it's worn by judges, here it's worn by victims, here it's worn by people who are doing torture. There's an example um, in Brazil where torturers used to take the same hoods and pass them back and forth between their own heads and their victims' heads because it doesn't matter so long as the victim just can't know who you are. And so... With with the hoodie, you know, we we have an example of a, of a thing that everyone wears. Um, but if you have an identity that is marginalized and persecuted, then you know you 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 carry with you um, risk that is that is put upon you that has nothing to do with the garment itself. And yet, you know, then we have all of these people who have ideas about what the hoodie means that are racialized and politicized. So I, I think you answered your own question, like, you know, by, by identifying that kind of cultural discourse, that, that, that is what this is about. And that, and that is, how, it's, it's, identifying is also how we try to undo it. So I'm sorry, I don't really, didn't really answer your question. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.